All right, well, uh, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we finished up our study through the book of John. And the big question is, where do we go next? Where are we gonna dive into? And uh, for this Sunday and for the next two, we're gonna be doing a sermon series on Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives, which sounds very boring. <laughs> but I think it'll be interesting. But let me begin this, our study this morning by sharing with you a mind-blowing st statistic. I cannot say statistic without stuttering for some reason. A mind-blowing statistic. Estimates vary on just how many different Christian denominations exist today. But according to the Center for Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Anybody have a guess on how many Protestant Christian denominations there are around the globe? Anybody have a guess? That, what did you say? 400. There are a whopping 47,000 Protestant Christian denominations around the world. 47,000. To put that in some perspective, there are somewhere around 30,000 members of Advent Christian churches in the United States. There are more denominations than there are individual Advent Christians in the United States today. Now, if that's true, that 47,000 number, that is a shockingly high number. And really, let's call it what it is. This represents an embarrassing and scandalous tribalism and disunity among the followers of Jesus for whom he prayed. Remember in our study of the high priestly prayer in John 17? He prayed for his disciples, not only the, the 11, or that it would become the 12, but also all those who would believe through them, through their testimony. He prayed that they would become perfectly one, even as he and the Father are one. 47,000 different denominations. How many breaks and splits and arguments resulted in that number? Unbelievable. You know, when I was in college, um, I went to a liberal arts college, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the difference between like a liberal arts college and a university is that liberal arts try to uh, produce a well-rounded scholar. So they try to expose you to all these different fields of study that aren't within your main area of study. And I was not a history uh, student in college particularly, but I had to take some history courses. Sorry, Mr. Atchison. <laughs> I tried to avoid them. But I took one called The History of Western Civilization. And I was fascinated to learn that until the Persians invaded Greece, there was no widely held concept of Greekness. If you had asked somebody on the Greek peninsula, what kind of people are you from, they would have answered, I'm an Athenian, or I'm a Spartan, or I'm a Corinthian. I'm this, that, or the other. But when the Persians invaded, all of a sudden, Athenians and Corinthians looked at each other and goes, and went, we're Greeks. <laughs> we gotta help each other, right? And this is what happened. The concept of Greekness was born out of an external threat. Now, I take that and I apply it to our own church context. Denominationalism flourished in the American church during a period 
when our society enjoyed a more prevalent cultural Christianity. In other words, when there was little by way of an external threat to the church. In that milieu, the church divided and split into all these little Christian city-states that we call denominations. But today, the American church is being pressured and invaded from without by a culture and society that is increasingly hostile to the church and the truths that we stand for. And as a result, I think denominational lines in the American church are becoming and will continue to become more and more irrelevant as we begin to see in one another fellow Christians, rather than Baptists and Methodists, Lutherans and Wesleyans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Pentecostals, and a denomination so small it does not really deserve to be counted among those big ones, Advent Christians, (laughs) us. Just a few weeks ago, again, we studied that high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, in which he prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He wrote to the Philippian church, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What a vision of God's people, side by side, striving with the same spirit. I wanted to begin our time together this morning with those observations because today and for the next two Sundays, we'll be studying Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives, those things that caused us at one time to split away from other churches and denominations. And it's important that we do that without promoting any sort of disunity or engaging in any kind of denominational tribalism. But unity and togetherness among God's people should also not come at the expense of a robust exploration of God's word. I know that sometimes, um, if you've ever done something with somebody who is a difficult, prickly person, we all just naturally tend to avoid anything that could be even remotely controversial. (laughs) Let's just keep thinking. And we see this in American society today. How many of you, when you first meet somebody, say, who did you vote for in the last election? That just isn't done. (laughs) Do you know why? Because you want to get along. You want to be liked. You want to have friends. And that's not the way to do it. And I think there's this way that uh, Christians have of making an idol of harmony to the extent where we avoid exploring difficult, controversial things. And I think that unity can't come at the expense of, again, a robust exploration of God's word. There's a lot in here we want to think about and study, and so, but it needs to be held in balance with the desire for unity. Unity does not mean that we avoid topics or that we only emphasize things that are universally agreed upon among Christians. There is that old maxim, 
In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. This, is, uh, this maxim is helpful in showing us how to live in unity within the church when uniformity in our interpretations of the Bible continues to elude us. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Those essentials of the faith in which all Christians are unified are neatly summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All Christians believe those things to be true. Those define the frontiers of what it is to be a Christian. All Christians would affirm that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, that Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by works, but by what Jesus did for us on the cross. These things are universally believed by all people who are Christians. Now, those are the primary doctrines of the faith that all Christians agree upon, and we really need to insist within the church on belief in these core, load-bearing doctrines, in essentials, unity. But beneath those doctrines are a great many more. These doctrines are still very important. They're worth studying and discussing. But we need to acknowledge that Christians of good conscience can and will disagree over these secondary and third-tier doctrines. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Striving for unity in the midst of theological diversity is a real challenge. But it's worth it, and it's honoring to our God who called us to be one. As James 3, 17 through 18 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let's begin this uh, series, this little mini-series on our doctrinal distinctives with a prayer that God would give us that spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, we know and are aware that you are the God who has existed for all eternity within the perfect, peaceful community of the Godhead. You have called your people to be one because you are one. Father, Soul, Father Son, and Holy Spirit, are so completely one, and you have called us to represent you, to image you forth in the midst of this world. Father, we ask your forgiveness 
for the way that human pride and ambition has given way to tribalism, disunity, disparate movements. God, in all of this, your image has been marred and we confess it. Father, help us to attain to a more perfect unity with our brothers and sisters. And Father, we thank you for the gracious gift of anything that would bring us back together in unity. Father, as we discuss those things, those convictions that Advent Christians have historically held through careful study of the Bible, Father, I pray, Lord, that that would be heard by the ears of people who disagree with them with a gracious spirit, a spirit that is uh, peaceful and desiring to stay in unity even while they respectfully disagree. And for those who do believe God, give us the same. Give us charity and, and extend liberty to Christians who have in, in, their, in their perfect liberty have chosen a different interpretation. Father, we know that Christians of good conscience can and will disagree over these things. And we thank you, Lord, for the unity of the church and for those things which are most essential. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so with that out of the way, uh, those distinctive interpretations of the Bible, which have traditionally been held by most Advent Christians and which have defined our movement within the greater family of the church, well, let's just say it, they all fall very squarely in that secondary tier. None of these things have anything to do with the essentials of the faith. In fact, they all have to do with, here's kind of a big uh, seminary term, personal eschatology. What eschatology is the study of the end times or the, fi- the last days, the final uh, e- movement of history. And personal just means as it's applied to us personally. So like the, some of you may be aware enough of theology, if you're a theology buff, that you're, you're aware that there's a debate among Christians about the thousand-year reign, the millennial, the millennium. You know. And so... That's, um, that's an eschatological debate, but it's not personal eschatology. That has to do with the kingdom. And so Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives all have to do with what happens to us, what happens to you as an individual. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for, the next, for this Sunday and the next two. Uh, something I need to add here before we dive in and start talking about uh, things is this. Someone asked me in an email this week, what does this have to do with membership? We love when people become members at State Road. And I want you to know that agreement with these doctrines, you do not have to agree with them to become a member here at State Road. All that we ask is that you you are a sincere believer, that those essentials of the faith are something that you would agree with. We certainly want our members to be aware of, and when we go through the membership class, we cover a lot of this material, but we never ask you at the end of it, Sign on the line that you agree. (laughs) That doesn't happen. We don't require that. That's okay. I know that most of you in coming to State Road didn't settle on this church necessarily because of our doctrinal stance on this or that, but because you found here, as I have, a sincere, warm-hearted group of Jesus followers, that they are just, uh, they, they are good friends. They are doing their humble level best to live for Jesus. And you have found a place here where you can worship God among a group of people that you feel are doing the same. 
And so that's good. You found a good thing here. And I want you to know that part of becoming a member does not require that you agree with these things. That's okay. Okay. So the way we're going to explore Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives this Sunday and the next two is by asking three questions. And then we're going to seek God's word for answers. Now, the first question is this, is man immortal? That's the question we're going to be studying this morning. Is man immortal? And really, the other two questions will build on this one. So we're going to do this one as kind of a foundational question, the answer to which will be foundational to where we go in the next two weeks, when we ask what happens to a person when they die, and also what is the ultimate or final end of the wicked? What happens to those people who don't put their trust in Jesus for salvation? But this morning, let's tackle this first one, is man immortal? I once saw Billy Graham during a televised crusade tell the audience, you're going to live forever. The only question is where? In fact, when I first put my trust in Jesus for salvation, it was at a Billy Graham crusade in Washington, D.C. I was just a little kid. And my dad and my mom took all of us kids across town on the subway. We went to this big arena, and Billy Graham, I was there, and I can remember when he said these words. You're gonna live forever. The only question is where? What a horrifying thought. Now, I'm a big fan of Billy Graham, truly. <laughs> Love this man. What a gift to the church. What a gift to uh, just our country and the world. And I first put my trust in Jesus for salvation at a Billy Graham crusade. Huge fan of Billy Graham. But I have to ask, is that statement true? You're gonna live forever, the only question is where? Do you remember when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, what did God say would happen if you ate the fruit of the tree? They said, oh, we'll die. What did Satan say? You will not surely die. You're gonna live forever. <laughs> so I do take exception to what Billy Graham said. It's, a, it's kind of surprising that very few Christians found his statement controversial even though it is essentially repeating the lie of Satan that you will not surely die. You're going to live forever. The only question is where? So is man immortal? It's a foundational question. And again, we're going to build on it over the next two weeks. My guess, though, is that if we conducted a man-on-the-street interview, uh, most people, whether they're Christians or not, if you ask them if human beings possessed an eternal soul that continued on after death in some way into eternity, the majority of respondents would say, yes, absolutely. This would be true in and out of the church. Well, as Christians, the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. If we're going to make a statement like that, we would need to find some basis for that contention in God's word. And although this notion that mankind naturally possesses an eternal spirit or immortal soul is held as unassailably true, it is a largely unexamined assumption that has little or no basis in what the Bible says about the nature of man. Um, some doctrines, some, some 
church uh, theologians have tried to find support in this, and they find it in kind of strange ways. There's not a great abundance of verses that can be construed to mean that man does have an immortal spirit. Dr. William Temple says, the core of the doctrine of the future life is this, man is not immortal by nature of right, but there is offered to him resurrection from the dead and life eternal, if he will receive it from God on God's terms. It is a doctrine not of immortality, but of resurrection. So let's not put the question to people on the street, but to God in his word. Is man, in, is man immortal? What does God have to say on this topic? Every indication in the Bible is that of and by himself, man is a mortal creature, subject to decay and death. The modern concepts of the immortal soul echo, again, I think, the lie of, the, of Satan in the garden that man is inherently immortal, that he won't really die. In fact, Ezekiel stated just the opposite. In Ezekiel 18, 14, and also verse 20, he says, The soul who sins shall die. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God alone has immortality. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus famously said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Over 500 times in the Old Testament, man is described as a mortal creature. The answer to this question, is man immortal, which has been historically embraced by Advent Christians through, again, careful study of the Bible, is that man is immortable, but is not inherently immortal. Now, I'm willing to bet that immortable is a new word for many of us, and do you know how I know that? Because when I typed it into my sermon notes, it had a red squiggly line under it. <laughs> Which means that Spelljack says that's not even a word. Well, it is. It is a word, and very few people have ever heard of it. When we describe man as being immortable, as opposed to immortal, we're saying that man is capable of being made immortal, but is not yet. This is, uh, this is certainly my conviction regarding what the Bible says about the nature of man. Man is immortable. He has the potential for immortality, but that is conditional on something else. By his own nature at creation, he is a mortal being. Man was created for immortality, but through Adam's sin, mankind fell and we forfeited our divine birthright. We became mortal beings, and now immortality and a continuing existence in eternity can be found only in a saving relationship with Jesus, and thus a continuing existence in eternity is best understood as being the sole portion of the redeemed. Immortality is conditional on a saving relationship with Jesus. And that's certainly what we preach. That's the most important thing for people to know is how they can be made new, how they can be saved through Jesus. The idea that death is merely a separation of a conscious immortal soul from the body, when you study the Bible, it's hard to, to uh, base it on what the Bible says. 
So if it doesn't come from the Bible, Josh, where do you think it comes from? And the answer is pretty clear cut. Uh, the notion that at death, our soul separates from our body is a product of Greek philosophy. Notice what Plato wrote in his writings in Phaedo. This is almost inseparable from um, what a lot of modern Christians believe. He, Plato wrote this, the soul whose inseparable attitude is life will never admit of life's opposite death. Thus the soul is shown to be immortal and since immortal, indestructible. We believe there is such a thing as death, to be sure. And is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? Being dead is the attainment of this separation when the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul. That is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul and body. Now, I'm willing to bet most of us have heard that before, but you have not heard it from the Bible. That is a common notion that finds its origin in Greek philosophy, not the data or content of God's word. Incidentally, last week we studied the great resurrection truth that Jesus was raised. Was Jesus separated from his body in the resurrection? Interestingly, no. This platonic idea that the soul separates from the body, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a direct rebuke to that idea. When Jesus died, he didn't say, ah, oh, I got rid of that icky body, and now I'm free to be pure spirit. No, he is even now at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. Now that's interesting, isn't it? If that's how we are to be resurrected, if that is what happens to followers of Jesus also, then this platonic idea that we are separated one from the other really is Gnostic thought that has gained traction among Christians. The Greek concept of the immortal soul assumes that individuals already possess eternality, that the only question is where this eternal life is spent after death. You're gonna live forever. The only question is where. That's Plato speaking. In stark contrast, many Bible passages portray immortality strictly as a gift to be given by God. Paul refers directly to the fact that God alone has immortality in 1 Timothy 6.16. In a well-known statement to the Romans, Paul insists that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift, something he gives, is eternality. In other words, the normal consequences of sin are death, but immortality, the opposite of death, is something that man does not have of and by himself. It only comes from the hand of God who gives it. In Romans 2.6, it says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Paul there in Romans 2 says that we are to seek immortality. We don't have it. It's something we seek after, not something we already have. And John echoes Paul's statement. 
And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son of life, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what then is man? To be sure, human beings are a special, glorious creation made in the very image of God. And man is immortal. We are made with the potential of living for eternity in God's kingdom. Certainly there is a dimension of our being that separates us from animals. It is a spiritual dimension. We were made to live in relationship with God. We have a capacity to understand the things of God, to seek Him, to follow Him. The very beginnings of man, I think, are helpful to us in our understanding here. In Genesis 2-7, we find those familiar words, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Uh, the Hebrew word that my translation, the ESV, renders creature literally means soul. Uh, there is no separation from any time in the Old Testament where it uses the word soul. Here it says that uh, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. That's what it means literally in the Hebrew. So from reading this verse alone, we see that this is the equation for man's creation. Dust of the ground plus breath of life equals a living soul. So man is therefore an embodied soul. The biblical writers never conceived of man as a disembodied soul. The biblical writers saw soul and body as a unified whole, inseparable, we are told that man will be raised bodily from the dead, some to eternal life and reward, and others to judgment and wrath. Those in heaven will be given new bodies, God's word tells us. And the bodies of the damned will suffer punishment and what Revelations describes as the second death. The Greek philosophers, most notably Plato, taught the essential duality of man, that we are body and soul, and that at death the soul and body separate. But this notion is difficult to support from the Bible. In fact, what the Bible says is that man is essentially a mortal creature. Both body and soul can be destroyed in hell, as Jesus said. God, in his grace, has offered us the gift of eternal life, but immortality is, is conditional on a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to continue this conversation. Each doctrine builds on the last, and so next week, the question we're going to bring to God's word is what happens when a person dies? Uh, so we're going to stop right there. Let me just pray. And we'll continue this conversation next week around that question. Dear Heavenly Father, in the midst of this robust exploration of God's word, I'm sure there were ideas that for some were the first time they ever wrestled with them. And Father, I continue to believe that old maxim that in essentials unity, Father, Christians everywhere should agree on a few certain things. 
But this conversation that we just began falls into that secondary category of areas where Christians in good conscience can and will disagree. And so, Father, I pray that in a spirit of unity, we would continue to explore these things while remaining committed to one another and to our relationships which are bound up in you and in the church. Father, I'm so grateful for this church family. I'm so grateful for the minds that you have given them, for the way that they search the scriptures for themselves. And Father, I pray that we, like the Bereans, when confronted with new ideas, would always run to your word to see if it lines up. Is it true? Father, we are uh, grateful for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who guides us into truth. And Father, we are all equally capable of searching God's word and for you to to meet us there and show us the, the truth of things. So Father, I thank you for this time that we've spent together. I thank you for this uh, discussion that we're having. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to bear fruit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.